Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Today, I'm going to ask you to do something different. Take a map. The app on your phone is fine, but please don't do this if you're driving. And scroll over to the southern part of the United States. Find Louisiana, and then find New Orleans, and then zoom in to where you can see the area both west of New Orleans and south of Baton Rouge. The area with cities named Homa, Amelia, and Thibodeau. If you've never been, this area is hot and humid, and the rich soils that the Mississippi River just north of here deposited every spring for thousands of years have made it some of the best crop-growing land in the country. Welcome to the Sugar Parishes. Something happened here almost a century and a half ago, something almost lost to the historical record. It's a story of violent antebellum politics bleeding over into the postbellum, of planters, of labor, of people fighting under terrible conditions for better lives, of those same people being murdered in their homes, in the streets of their city, and then being forgotten. There's a through line here, though, of a man who survived to tell the tale. You'll hear his name shortly. Without him, without his account, we would only have a fraction of the story. A story that those in power at the time were determined to bury forever. Our guest today is John DeSantis, author of The Thibodeau Massacre, Racial Violence and the 1887 Sugarcane Labor Strike. Full disclosure, John and I have known each other for years when he and my brother worked in the same newsroom in Homa 15 years ago, just after Hurricane Katrina in the period of time that he was researching this book, but before it was published. John is an award-winning journalist, a natural storyteller with a heart for people, place, and detail, and it's a privilege to have him as our guest. Thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule. It is a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Normally, I ask our guests about methods and sources and bibliographies at the end of our conversation after we've kind of covered the main bit of the story and the key players and you know that sort of thing but in the case of this riot in Thibodeau this riot this massacre this absolute tragedy the methods and the sources are central I want to bring those right to the fore. You were not supposed to tell this story. In fact, no one was supposed to tell this story. Why was that? There are two distinct views here. One having to do with the truth or the truths of the perpetrators uh, at the time it occurred. Um, and, and one of the big challenges um, in not only researching this, but eventually writing about it, was having to look at it and respect it from the standpoint of these people being people of their time. What 
it, it was essential, you know, while I certainly don't ascribe to their values, um, their values, the political situation, all of it had to be looked at and considered in the researching and the writing um, because it was the social, economic, and political considerations that were part of this bubbling stew that led to the tragedy, uh, that led to the crime. And, and it was a crime, uh, a crime for which nobody was ever held accountable. So in, in, in a clearer answer to your question, it wasn't supposed to be told because on, on the one hand, it reflected very poorly on the ancestors of people who were very established, uh, members of very established white families. So any narrative which spoke the truth about what occurred uh, conflicted or would conflict greatly with um, the, the group memory of, of what occurred. I, I didn't learn until well into the research. And, and there were two facets of this research. One involved records and, and, and things you could look at. But the other, uh, more importantly, had to do with um, the social research, the historical social research, oral histories. And it wasn't until the book was published that the current or the, the narrative up to that point had been that for white families in Thibodeau, this mm -hmm. atrocity was in their mind an act of self-defense. It, it's and and not to bring current day politics into this, but it's it, it was interesting to me that this story was being told at the start of the Trump presidency when fear and during that whole campaign in 2016, fear was a key element. And it was fear and beliefs of things that would occur, um, not really with a lot of basis, that this story certainly unearthed. You know, it struck me that from almost the very moment it was over, what you see at work here is uh, what my old colleagues uh, in archaeology departments would have called the politics of forgetting, right? I mean, you have an immediate silencing beginning to take place and a cover-up and really a letting go of this shameful act that um, would have left a, a permanent stain on a parish's reputation. And for our listeners who aren't aware, um, when we speak of Louisiana, uh, Louisiana has parishes, not counties, unlike other American states. So if you hear us talk about Terrebonne Parish or Lafouche Parish, we're talking about counties. Um, John, you had you had a lot of work to do to uncover this politics of forgetting. And the early sources that you worked with 
Nichols State Archives um, a University in that area. You had census lists, you had a coroner's report, and you even had a, a journal by a local priest that you worked with, but they were all so partial, weren't they? Oh, they, 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 they were very much. And that's, again, why uh, it, it was very important to um, actually be non-judgmental in, in examining these things, because judgment during the course of the research would have hindered uh, uh, objective analysis. And, and so... Uh, yes, from from the local media to the New Orleans media um, to, as you mentioned, uh, the uh, uh, diaries of a priest, a local priest. Um, these were all shaded in the colors of, for lack of a better word, the ruling class at that time. They controlled the narrative. Uh, in, in fact, uh, weeks after this occurred, um, uh, and, and, and again, uh, the more things change, the more they remain the same, I guess. Uh, one of the things that, that, that became apparent was that the authorities, people in authority, were blaming the victims and uh, there was a uh, there was a, uh, a letter that appeared in the Thibodeau Sentinel, and also uh, I believe was published uh, in one of the New Orleans papers too, uh, which uh, a key player in these events, Judge Taylor Beatty, wrote of the tragedy of what occurred, uh, and and I'm using the word tragedy. He did not, but it was. It considered an unfortunate incident, and it came in 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 Beatty's um, way of looking at it because the Negroes, as he put it, had chosen the wrong leaders. They had chosen to follow the wrong people, and and certainly that that we we've seen so many examples over the years uh, in our lifetimes, uh, especially when it comes to black-white relations, uh, uh, for those in power to take that, that, that kind of a position. Um, uh, if you look, uh, and not to be tangential on this, but um, when I was working on my first book, which dealt with a modern-day uh, lynching, as it were, um, uh, one of the things that was a constant throughout in New York in, in the 1980s, um, was that, uh, the family of uh, a young man who had been, uh, killed by some local white thugs in Brooklyn. Uh, the problem was not the murder. The problem was the, uh, fact that the uh, uh, young man's family and African-American people in general had followed the wrong leader. They had followed Reverend Al Sharpton, and that was a really bad thing to do. So looking back at uh, the massacre and the aftermath of it, the narrative became that if the uh, local black population 
had not uh, listened to the labor organizers that uh, a lot of people would still be alive and this horrible thing would not have occurred. Uh, you had also mentioned, um, and this is kind of chilling in the narrative, that the local priest who had written of this in his uh, diary, very glancingly so, uh, without giving any sense of the true horror of what occurred, uh, ended his narrative by saying um, that, uh, and I'm injecting, injecting, I'm injecting the word fortunately, that the sugar harvest that year was uh, fine, that it was one of the best harvests that they had in years, despite the strike that led to the massacre. Um, you know, and, and, and that, I think, more than anything, certainly uh, shows what the local mindset was. We will come to white gold in just a moment. But what, what struck me in your account was this is so common in questions of Southern research and Southern history, and this actually came up in an interview that we did with one of our guests about the Dixie Mafia uh, some weeks back. Your account describes over and over again the interwoven nature of community in Southern Louisiana. You interview the descendants of the families who uh, were uh, both participating in and victimized by this massacre. Uh, you speak to archivists who come from the places that their collections describe. And yet, despite this deeply interwoven nature, the coin has two sides, doesn't it? So often with Southern violence, the chief characteristic is its intimacy, the pre-existing bonds between the perpetrator and the victim. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody has worked with everybody. There are familial relations which are at stake. Violence in the South, especially in this period, is rarely random, isn't it? Uh, very rarely random. But the, 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 a common thread, uh, and, and certainly when we look during the time of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, those of us who know our history on that, for example. Um, it, it doesn't get the, the, the issues that um, white society would blame um, African-American people for. It, it's not, and, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm using a, a, a very difficult phrase to work with here. It's not our blacks who did the demonstrating, the protesting, or in this case, the striking. It's outside, it's them outside agitators. And, and, and this was, a, a, again, with that narrative we discussed in terms of the, um, in terms of, of the leaders of the strike, they were definitely seen as outside agitators, which goes back to that narrative of, well, our black people followed the wrong people because, you know, they should have followed us because they should have known better. And, and again, in that sense, uh, cross-generationally, we see that narrative unfolding again and again. 
you have a there is an unlikely hero in this story a very unlikely hero a man who was nearly lost to history were it not for a startling discovery that uh, you made in the course of the research tell us about jack conrad jack actually jack conrad wasn't nearly lost to history he was non-existent essentially in this context um uh, jack conrad uh was a man who was born we believe um in either ascension or assumption parishes uh one of those two if i'm if i'm recalling correctly um and ended up uh in a situation where his mother and himself, and we believe a brother, were sold during slavery to uh, a family that was a landowning family in Lafouche Parish, <coughs> a landowning family in Lafouche Parish, uh, the Cayuettes. And the best that we could put together, uh, he grew up on a plantation that the Cayuettes own. I, I need to inject here, um, because this is going to come up at various points during our discussion. Um, when we think of plantations, <coughs> um, when we think of plantations, uh, you know, we think of uh, Tara and, and the big house, and then there's fields nearby where people are working and so on. However, the truth was that in many cases, uh, especially when you're dealing with sugar, which is something you're dealing with very much in South Louisiana, um, the plantation, as it were, in some cases consisted of tracts of land where sugar was grown but it was not always this type of situation where people were living there, where, it was the, where there was this big plantation economy, the, the kind that we're used to reading about. Uh, in this case, uh, Mr. Cayuette, who owned the property that uh, Jack uh, was involved with, uh, was a gunsmith. But he also, and he and members of his family, grew sugar. Sugar was an amazing cash crop. And so Jack Conrad somehow, uh, as he was growing up, uh, became involved with sugar. We're not sure exactly how. And around 1862, uh, after Union Army forces had uh, overrun Thibodeau uh, after the Battle of George Landing, uh, Many uh, black families uh, left the plantations on which they worked, all, all traveling down what's now Highway 1 uh, from uh, the Donaldsonville area going all the way down to Thibodeau. And in many cases, uh, some of the men uh, and boys um would end up either voluntarily or because they were impressed in, uh, would join the Union Army, the federal forces. 
and Jack Conrad, uh, who would have been at that point, well, he was a young man. Uh, he joined the United States Army, which was the occupying army there, uh, ended up getting mustered in in, Tibet, in uh, New Orleans. <clears throat> and he became a member of what was then the 75th U.S. Colored Infantry. So he was involved in the war to that extent. We know that some of his uh, records indicate that he had served as a carpenter, served as a, ba as a baker or chef for a while. And But it's important to note that during the war between the states, as well as during any uh, conflict that we look at today, any war that we look at today, whether you were a carpenter, a, a tank mechanic, uh, a horseshoer, <clears throat> if you were <clears throat> traveling with the army, uh, you were carrying arms and you were very much at risk. And that's an important thing to remember here. So Jack Conrad traveled with the 75th all the way north in Louisiana uh, through the Red River campaign. So he was in some places where there was a lot of action. And then <clears throat> when the war was over, Jack Conrad uh, was uh, dismissed. Uh, decommissioned in New Orleans. And what he did, uh, still a young man, was he went back to the Cayuette family. He went back to the place where he had come from and he began work uh, in their sugar operation and then subsequently at someone else's sugar operation as ostensibly a paid laborer. Um, we know that one of the things that occurred with him was that he had acquired some skills, um, that allowed him to actually do repairs on boilers, which was a big deal. A, a, a boiler, um, at a sugar, uh, refinery operation, uh, was the key piece of equipment. And so a, a boiler um, repairer would have been um, a, a key part of these operations, particularly, I might add, when uh, the sugar industry in South Louisiana was attempting to get itself back on its feet in the aftermath of the war. I'd actually like to ask you to read us a passage from your book about the extent of the sugar operation. And in particular, um, for our listeners who are not actually aware of how sugarcane is harvested and turned into refined or processed sugar or molasses, as the case may be, uh, you have a pretty good account of how that works and how dangerous it was on page 36 in your book. And we'll come back to Jack because his, his role as kind of the hero of reclaiming this story from history is going to come uh, very much to the fore uh, down as the years go by. But for now, if you would just uh, start us off, it's an extended passage uh, to 
two paragraphs on page 36 that begin... Uh, in 1859, the slaves of Terrebonne and Lafouche and Assumption Parishes. If you just take that, those next two long paragraphs for us, and I'll ask our listeners to bear with us because this detail is incredibly important. We're, we're looking uh, at a reference uh, in these paragraphs to 1859, and uh, that, of course, being just prior to, to the outbreak of the war. And in 1859, the slaves of Terrebonne, Lafouche, and Assumption Parishes numbered 21,276 overall. The non-slave population of the three parishes comprised 19,923 whites, 315 free blacks, and 103 native people in a year when Louisiana produced more than 350,000 hogheads. A hogshead is a standard barrel of sugar. While it did not set a record, 1859 was one of the highest years in sugar production up to that time. Uh, the work done to produce it was intense. Beginning with furrows dug a yard wide and seeds planted by hand six inches deep Workers hunched and dug, planted, and tended one row after another. Children, as well as adults, laid 7,000 plantings or more for one prospective area of growth, depending on the variety of cane. As the crop grew, slaves swung large, heavy cane knives against the stalks to whack away weeds. When harvest time came along, strong backs and arms wielded the knives against the tough stalks again. Once felled, they were loaded onto mule-drone carts. As the carts wobbled to the mills, women and children working as scrappers fell in behind, snatching up segments of cane that fell off. A greater level of skill was employed at the refineries where the stalks were crushed under huge rollers, in most cases three times over. The juice collected from the rollers was poured into large centrifuges that rapidly spun, plastering blocks of solid brown sugar to the walls and the sweet juice collected at the bottom. The juice was boiled at extremely high temperatures as the crystallizing process began. More intensive work was required for breaking up the blocks of brown sugar and other tasks. Danger lurked throughout the process. A misstep with a boiler or the handling of these searing hot juices could mean a horrible death. Slaves and later paid workers lost arms in the cane crushers. Workers from more recent times now retired from the cane fields said in interviews that their own work was not much different from that of the slaves or wage workers in the later 19th century. Gustav Rhodes Jr., a retired Assumption Parish cane worker who began toiling in sugar when mules were still used, perhaps put it best in a 2007 interview when he said, you worked from can't to can't, can't see in the morning, so can't see at night. That is remarkable. Thank you, John. I, I mean, when I read that, I just thought this is one of the best appreciations of the extent of the work. And for our listeners who are not 
familiar with the landscape of South Louisiana, you can still go to a number of these uh, plantations that still exist and see the equipment that was used at the time. I'm thinking particularly of St. Joseph Plantation and these these massive copper tons that were used. They they're enormous, and you can see how anybody trying to wield one would just be at permanent uh, sort of risk of having these horrible as you say, boiling hot juices sort of sloshing over onto them at any point in the process, scalding them, burning them, scarring them, you know, on their legs and arms, just at every waking moment. It was grueling work producing this stuff. And yet the profits for the planter class were so high that the physical risk and the danger were of less consequence. I I would note here in terms of that uh, with something that you said um, the profits for the industry overall of course were uh, large enough to make it and at various peaks in, in, in the history of sugar in Louisiana uh, uh, certainly great fortunes were made um, however and this is one of the excuses uh, for the violence that occurred um it was also like other types of, of farming, uh, a lot of risk, r- risks from nature, uh, market risks, uh, political uh, issues, things uh, such as the desire for tariffs at certain points and so on. All of the families that were in the sugar business. And, and I, I, I need to point out here that we're not just talking about uh, those who grew the sugar, those who owned the land, but communities like Thibodeau were so dependent on these crops. Um, if you look at these communities today, when the oil field is 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 the dominant economic driver, such as it's been recently, um, Everyone is involved to one degree or another, from grocery stores to uh, gas stations. Uh, with uh, today, with uh, the well-being of the oil industry or the oil service industry, in the case of that region. Well, back uh, during much of its history in the 18th and later the 19th century, these communities depended on sugar. So even if you were not a sugar planter, your work one way or another depended on the success of these fields. And it was literally the economic lifeblood. That is what these local economies were built around. That's very important to remember. And so with war, as happens with war, came destruction, uh, came uh, many issues involving land ownership, involving uh, the ability to move uh, the products of the crop itself. And so when the war was over, um, these people who had been kings of, of what amounted to industry in that area at that time were penniless and they had to rebuild their supply 
routes. They had to rebuild the business. And more than ever, they needed labor to do this. Uh, as we had just discussed, the labor was incredibly intensive. And, and an important aspect of sugarcane is that it depended by its very nature on gang labor. You had to have <coughs> very strong men and very strong women and very strong mules and, and, and a lot of them. And so uh, with the end of the war, and, and well, something else that, that, that needs to be said here is that when the war ended, there was another issue in Louisiana, and that was Reconstruction. And the sugar parishes, like Terrebonne and Lafouche, remained under federal control. We're talking troops in the streets uh, for roughly 11 years after the end of the war. The Reconstruction lasted longer in Louisiana than it did anywhere else in the South. And so although we, we would like to look at the war ending as being the, the time when prosperity could be rebuilt in these communities uh, from the standpoint of, of, of the community, um, you had all kinds of issues during that Reconstruction period. might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight cisgender white men and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either she's wendy and i'm beth and together we host fruit loop serial killers of color a true crime podcast together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold we also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve at fruit loops we're serving up true crime with a side of history society culture and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At the end of the war, emancipation really was a short-lived victory. I mean, you had these whites who had fought for the Confederacy, the planter class, many of whom had gone off on horseback to the war. They were out of power in one sense because their financial uh, dealings had been decimated. But very quickly, they sought to reassert the old order, even under federal occupation. So you had the landowners engaging in intimidation campaigns against black laborers. You had vigilante justice emerging as a theme during this period in the early 1870, late 1860s, early 1870s. And you had resentment against the Freedmen's Bureau, of course, which is widespread across the South. And yet you also have this other tension of the black laborers who had had that taste of freedom, of rights. They are beginning to want more. They are wanting to become um, heirs to the land in their own right and to keep the guarantees of the end of the war, the federal guarantees in the Constitution, enshrined. And so 
out of these tensions, small skirmishes, smaller uh, sort of we call them riots, but they're they're the Colfax incident, Easter Sunday of 1873. They're not to the scale of what happened in Thibodeau, but you begin to see these kind of conflagrations, right? You begin to see the angers, the frustrations boiling over, and suddenly bodies are dropping in the streets, and and the the tension between the new South that is emerging in this time and the old South, which refuses to allow it to rem- to emerge, is manifest and visible. Uh, very much. And uh, of course, other parts of the South where crops like cotton were essential, um, you had sugar and its idiosyncrasies in that sugar belt in South Louisiana. And there were various uh, situations where uh, people, well, for one thing, um, uh, newly propertied black people uh, were the subject of various uh, types of intimidation. Um, It's important to remember that with the institution of the Freedmen's Bureau, Uh, One of the things that occurred was that white landowners, these people who had been on top, were having their land taken away. Um, uh, Former Confederate officers who either refused or sometimes got back home too late to take loyalty oaths had their lands confiscated. Uh, uh, and, And so... Uh, there was a tremendous uh, amount of resentment in this sense. Uh, several uh, big tracts of land in Terrebonne and in Lafourche uh, ended up going to groups of black families via the Freedmen's Bureau uh, who would, uh, uh, would uh, be doing petitions for the land, had to meet certain requirements, and so there were also, there's something else important to remember, the political at this time, which was that all during Reconstruction, there were various methods used uh, by the federal government and by the Republicans who were taking uh, power uh, in Louisiana um, to deny the right of franchise to people who had owned property. So in, in, in one uh, situation that we mentioned, uh, uh, the polling place, one polling place in Lafouche Parish was moved from a very easily accessible place uh, on the main highway to way deep in the worker quarters of one of the plantations. And so men, and of course it was only men who were voting then, um, either for for various reasons would not go and vote. There was ballot stuffing. There were all kinds of things going on. And this was the Republicans who were trying to maintain their power uh, during and after Reconstruction. Now, in some parts of the South, uh, some of this activity uh, resulted in, in birth to organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. In 
Louisiana, uh, you have to remember the Ku Klux Klan did not uh, admit Catholics, uh, and uh, you had a, a, a large number of Catholics who were landowners in South Louisiana. But there were other organizations like the Knights of the White Camellia uh, who attempted to enforce this idea of white rule. Eventually, uh, what occurred was that uh, the Democrats, uh, these were the people who had been the landed whites and their supporters, they came back into power. There were major changes in government. But, but all along the way, violence was used to enforce the will of that numbered majority. And so uh, you had situations such as Colfax, uh, where there was an attempt to quell the power of Republicans, which included uh, newly uh, uh, enfranchised black voters. Uh, in Thibodeau, uh, there was a, uh, over time, in Thibodeau, the home guard, uh, the militia, as it were, um, was an entirely black outfit. And so you had these uh, newly minted black militiamen uh, with the blessing of the official state government uh, who were doing armed maneuvers in the middle of the uh, town square, um, which was did not sit well with the white populace. No, nor did just the notion of blacks being able to carry weapons. One of the first, one of the first things, uh, Nichols was elected governor. Uh, one of the first things he did was disarm these militias, took their guns away, uh, which was a huge victory for the planter class and the people who supported them. So, uh, and, and during, and I have to add something, which is that during Reconstruction, these uh, black militias, and again, I'm calling them black militias because their makeup was primarily black, but they were being fully supported by the government that was in power during Reconstruction. And so when you had various atrocities that occurred, whether it was you know, a lynching of one black man or, um, you know, further north in Louisiana, situations like Colfax, um, these black militias would come to the aid of black people who were being terrorized. That's during Reconstruction. So after Reconstruction, these protections no longer existed, not to mention that uh, federal troops were withdrawing from the area. And so once again, as the Democrats seized control in Baton Rouge, um, you had a situation where the old guard was reestablishing itself. And with that reestablishment came um, a restoring of the old ways in terms of the way order was uh, set up. 
uh, on the various plantations and, and so on. And so what you then had was this burgeoning um, group of people, many of them former uh, Confederate Army officers, and they were officers uh, largely because they were landed people, uh, men of power, men of money, uh, and a lot of the ones who had the most to lose uh, should the federal government uh, be able to prevail. And they had come back home and they wanted to build up uh, their sugar operations again because it was all they had. They didn't have much else, but they had the land. So we're working towards the events of November 1887, which we will cover in detail next week. But one of the things which is often true of moments of great violence is that they don't come out of nowhere, right? You don't suddenly have wars erupt overnight. You don't suddenly have massacres take place in a vacuum. There are always factors which lead to outbreaks of mass violence. You write about the events in the 1870s. There are a couple of strikes. <laughs> There's another at the turn of the year uh, between 1879 and 1880, that winter time, where the laborers who are still living on uh, these plantations have organized and they have begun to find one another and to make demands of their employers such as a rise in wages from $18 a month to $20 a month or to be able to own part of the land on which they were working and share in the profits. What we have here is a growing set of these tensions that had been in place for some years with the planters allied with the state law enforcement apparatus and the laborers who are organizing themselves under the Knights of Labor, which is an organization you describe at great length. What is the, what is the mood here as we approach 1887? Because it, it doesn't look like things are simmering down. There was a grudging understanding among the planters that they were going to have to deal with a phenomenon they had never dealt with before. Um, and, and this is going to sound, this is not going to sound good any way I put it. Um, but if tomorrow, uh, if I own horses and tomorrow my horses decided that they were going to negotiate with me what they uh, received in return for pulling my wagons or for carrying me to the store, uh, that would be unthinkable. That that would be something that in my mindset, that would be something that in my mindset, uh, I would have great difficulty accepting. Uh, and again, when we look at the importance of seeing the mindset of the people at this time, the people who had been in power, that essentially was what the workers who had been an enslaved population who were regarded as property, all of a sudden your property is saying to you, hey, wait a minute, I don't like this deal. I don't like the way it's working out. 
I don't like the idea of you giving me a few pennies and paying the rest in plantation script. Plantation script is something that becomes very important to this conversation. And, and so there were situations where uh, labor, uh, well, in 1874, uh, on one of the very largest sugar plantations in South Louisiana, which was Southdown, which was the sugar plantation, uh, by, by 1874, when the workers were saying, oh, wait a minute, we want to negotiate our situation here. And the minor family, which uh, owned Southdown, was put in a position to have to negotiate. And there were very, very tense moments uh, because of this. And as the planters struggled to come to terms with this new order, the workers struggled to try to be able to make ends meet because what was becoming apparent uh, eight and 10 and 15 years after the war was we're supposed to be free, but we're not. And the people, and remember you get a whole new generation in here as well. Uh, People who were born not as slaves, but as free people uh, who had ostensibly the right to vote, um, they wanted to be able to change their circumstances as, as anyone would. Um, they wanted their piece of what they had been told they were entitled to. And so these uh, labor issues, uh, uh, not only in Terrebonne and Lafourche, but also further west in New Iberia uh, and, and other uh, places, um, they began dealing with the idea of, hey, wait a minute, if we don't work, the sugar doesn't get planted or harvested, and we've got a bargaining chip here. What ended up occurring as a result of this was that the planters formed uh, industry organizations. Uh, They would do things like set the price of sugar. They would negotiate um, payment or terms of payment um, as a group that would uh, extend to right down to the workers in the field. Um, And so by the time 1886 rolls around, uh, you already had a situation that made the planters very nervous. Um, and, and I have to add, too, that the idea, and this is where fear enters into the picture, the idea that the laborers could conceivably, just as it had happened in some cases during slavery, get what they wanted by way of violence, even though, uh, well, with the exception of the Nat Turner Rebellion, for example, um, those attempts were 
uh, it didn't come to much, but there was still a tremendous amount of fear. The local medias, the, the outlets, um, were very involved in spreading the idea of fear. And indeed, by the time you get to just before that 1887 growing season, the uh, local newspaper in Thibodeau had taken an article that they ran back just prior to 1876 about the local black militia. <coughs> they took an article that had run in 1876 about the local black militia and they reran the article as if it was true at that time. It, it was disinformation of the type that we see on social media now, but that was in the mainstream media of the day. And so this fear extended, uh, not just from the, the planters, the property owners, but to their wives, their children. They were taught to fear. And fear, as we see, becomes an important element of the disaster that occurred in 1887. The last question that I have for you this week, John, is amid this climate of fear and uncertainty and tension, where was Jack Conrad? What was he doing at this moment just before the violence broke out? Jack Conrad, as the, the, we dawn on 1887, and I had mentioned uh, that he had become a very highly skilled worker. So Jack Conrad was not living on a plantation at that point. Jack Conrad was living in a rent house in what was then referred to as back of town Thibodeau, where there was a very large black population. He lived in this rent house with his wife, Mary, uh, with their children. And uh, we believe he was living with his brother-in-law as well. One of the people who was living there with him was his son, Grant. Now, we think that Grant, who was uh, 19 years old in 1887, was he was a laborer we believe he was on strike when the strike occurred uh jack had continued working on the plantation which was uh, the plantation he worked on then was owned by a mr whitehead and jack was working although when we get to november 23rd 1887 uh, Jack had stated that he was homesick and that he was not on strike. But that did not deter uh, what occurred later in terms of the violence. Well, we're going to pick right back up with Jack uh, when we come back next week. But for now, thank you so much for setting the stage for us and for helping us to understand the tensions that led to this disaster, as we said uh, last time with Stephanie Hoover. These are not the stories that we want to hear, but they are the stories that we have to hear. So thank you, John, so much for, for being here with us.
Thanks for listening. Our guest has been John DeSantis, author of The Thibodeau Massacre, Racial Violence and the 1887 Sugarcane Labor Strike, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Join us next time for the second part of our interview and for what happened when the match finally lit the powder keg. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To find out more about Crime Capsule and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com. Mm-hmm.